40 years in, I'm still amazed how aviation brings us together. If you've listened to the first few installments of this podcast, you might already notice a difference in this introduction. Typically, our fantastic voiceover artist, Tammy Ankra, sets up these conversations by relating our guests to a wider theme within aviation. Our guest today, however, requires a little personal backstory. Earlier this year, I was invited to the VAST conference in Hearst, Texas, about a 30-minute drive from our Airbus facility in Grand Prairie. Great minds from across the world of aviation were to converge on the Hearst Conference Center to deliberate on helicopter safety, among other aviation-centric topics. We thought, what a perfect opportunity to record conversations with some insightful guests who would otherwise be unavailable to us. Keep in mind, a conference center is not the best place to record audio, but we may do. With a few spare tables, chairs, and curtains, we fashioned a makeshift podcast studio in the corner of a vacant conference room and tried our best to fight the outside room noise. Then came the rail work, booking willing guests. Our first designated time slot was an hour into the first day, and we had yet to lock someone in. In the meantime, our team was busy shooting daily event recap videos for social media. Our producer, Logan, asked me to help him find someone to stage a shot showcasing the conference-provided breakfast. I scanned the room and approached the first person who caught my eye, a woman sitting alone at a breakfast table. Most people are apprehensive when approached by strangers with a camera, but Vicki Coates could not have been more helpful. She spoke in a cheerful Kiwi accent and graciously went along with our requests. I believe we had her grab a bagel. Logan captured the shot and then left to film more around the conference. I stayed and spoke with Vicky, curious how someone from across the world wound up sitting by herself at a helicopter conference in Hearst, Texas. I asked Vicky about herself and her work. She told me she was the team lead of certification for the agricultural and helicopter branch of the New Zealand Civil Aviation Authority. She had come to the conference alone and knew nobody else in attendance. <laughs> I asked her, what are you doing one hour from now? The result is this conversation you're about to hear, and I think it exemplifies something that I continue to love about our industry. Vicky began her career flying cattle mustering operations in the remote Australian outback. I've never been to that part of the world, but I related to the can-do attitude Vicky expressed while telling her story. I came to learn that, like me, she was raised on a farm where she developed the tenacity and work ethic, which I'm willing to bet accounts for her success in aviation. The day after the conference, we invited Vicky to Airbus. We gave her a tour, introduced her to some of our colleagues, and learned a whole lot more about helicopter operations in New Zealand. I'm happy to have made another unlikely friend in this industry. Meeting Vicky was another reminder that in aviation, as in life, we have so much in common with those who seem to come from such different worlds. We just need to reach out and make the connections. So please, enjoy the following conversation with Vicki Coates. I'm Bruce Webb, and this is Push to Talk, Episode 4, Number 8 Wire. Welcome to the show, Vicki. Thank you, Bruce. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So you traveled here from... So I came uh, across to Dallas from Wellington, New Zealand. So I, I'm based in Wellington, our capital city, uh, and came across here on Sunday evening. Okay, and it's Tuesday now, so it's, you, it's do Tuesday. you don't look jet lagged at all. Oh, well, fortunately, Air New Zealand has a great business class, so I had a good sleep <laughs> overnight on the way here. Yes. Well, yeah, that does make a difference. For people that travel, getting a good night's sleep or some rest aboard the ship is pretty important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I always land and go for a walk and explore the area that I'm in. Right. So. I do think it is important. Once you get to the location, you need to immediately acclimate. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think too often, at least when I go east, the temptation is when you get there, you're tired is just to go to bed, but that's the worst thing to do. So I agree. Yeah. So, so I'll have that when I go back home. I actually miss a day going home, so I'll be skipping the 14th of October. <laughs> Land back in New Zealand at six o'clock in the morning, and yeah, I'll be having a very long day. Awesome. So tell us, what do you do on a daily basis? What is your job within the CAA? So as you introduced me, I'm the team leader of the certification unit for the agriculture and helicopter sector in New Zealand. So I have a team of eight people. Basically, we regulate uh, about 238 different helicopter and agricultural organizations across New Zealand. Okay. Uh, we also look after 14 flight training organizations. Wonderful. So 
On a daily basis, we communicate with our participants on their recertifications that come up. So every five years, their certificates get renewed. We process the change of senior persons within the organisation, adding aircraft, changing training programmes, etc. So it's it's a busy role, uh, and we're one team that looks after the entire country. Right. Well, so, what what drew you to work for the CAA? So you did you weren't you didn't start your career with the CAA? No, no, I didn't. Uh, yeah, good question, Bruce. So I started flying quite late. It was a second career for me. So I was thirty four when I did my pilot's license. And was fortunate to fly a lot in New Zealand and in Australia. And I always thought that I would like to go and work for the regulator at some point, but I saw it as something when I was 55 plus to to go and do that. And look, this opportunity came up about five years ago and I thought I'll apply for the job. I was working in Australia at that time. I was the chief pilot for a small company over there and I threw my hat in the ring and it was literally the day that they were closing the application. It was the first time in my life I ever wrote an actual CV (laughs) and applied for a job properly. Um, And I got a phone call on the Monday and they said they'd like to interview me and they flew me to New Zealand and yeah, had the interview and it went from there. So you're batting a thousand. In the United States, we would say you're batting a thousand, which means you went to bat once and you got a hit. Yeah. So you wrote one CV... And got a job. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was, look, it, it, the job turned out to be nothing like what I actually expected mm-hmm. it would be. I'm not really sure what I thought it would be when I took the role. Um, but look, it's fascinating. Every single day is different. I get to work with, like I said, 238 different organizations who, they're all helicopter companies, but they all do something very unique mm-hmm. and bespoke to their area that they work in. Which is the beauty of helicopters. No helicopter operation is, well, let me say it differently. Every helicopter operation is unique. It is. They all do different things. And even if they do the same type of work, you know, maybe you're doing agriculture, but, and and I was a spray pilot. I began my career spraying. uh, So I probably had more licensure to be an ag operator. So you could be an operator, an applicator. I forget which was the higher. I think applicator was the highest standard. So I was an applicator. We sprayed ornamentals, right-of-way, mosquito, and vegetable crops. So, yeah, you had to take a different set of tests for each one of those. Is that similar in New Zealand? Do you? It's not quite the same in New Zealand. So we have one qualification, a pilot chemical rating. Uh, so we've got two companies within New Zealand that's, that can do that process, so through GrowSafe. And basically what you do as an ag pilot is you're either doing spraying or fertilizer or VTA, which is uh, in New Zealand, we use 1080 for some poisoning in our national parks, which is another application that you need, another qualification. Poisoning, that is uh, for an insecticide or a, is it to kill insects or to kill No, it's to kill, uh, so we have a problem with possums, red deer. Really? Yep, yep. So, and it's destroying the vegetation in the national parks. Wow. We, yeah, have a huge amount. Yeah. Of- yeah, I'm not a fan of possums, so I don't have any problem with that. No, I say <laughs> that. I, You know, um, all animals uh, have a right to exist on this planet. Yeah. Just some of them, yeah, through overpopulation, it's difficult. It's hard on them. Mm-hmm. So really, you're you're helping save the population and, and allow them to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So, And it's yeah. one of the exciting things about working in the helicopter sector is that y- you get involved in so many different aspects of other industries and other organizations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm th- as I sit here now, I was just thinking random thought, but I remember the, uh, to spray mosquitoes, I had to be able to identify an 80s Anopheles mosquito as differentiated from a uh, Culex Vexan. Now, why I needed to know that, I don't know. And because, how did you do that, Bruce? Well, you had to visually identify these different mosquitoes and what what parasites or what disease vectors they carried. I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can remember these dumb mosquitoes. Yeah. But anyway, all to say that, yeah, that is the wonderful thing about helicopters is that they're unique. Every ship is is oftentimes best suited for certain missions, certain jobs. Uh, you know, you wouldn't use a super puma to uh, spray mosquitoes, uh, but you also wouldn't use an R-22 to lift uh, power line poles. So your background, so what, what did you, how did you begin your career? So you were 34 years old, you decided you want to be a pilot. So how did that, how did you progress? 
So I decided uh, when I was quite young that I wanted to be a helicopter pilot and I took a gap year when I finished my high school, took a gap year from uni, went overseas and sort of got sidetracked. So I'd, I didn't come back to New Zealand for about 17 years in that time and then eventually thought, hey, I really need to make this decision here and actually go and do my licence or I'll be too old. So I moved back to New Zealand from the Netherlands uh, when I was 33 and learned wow. to fly in Christchurch, New Zealand. Uh -huh. What uh, kind of aircraft? Uh, I learned in a Robinson 22. Okay. The Robinson 22 is probably the most prolific aircraft that we use in New Zealand for flight training. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't learn in those, although I did. Uh, we had Tim Tucker on the show. And uh, so I learned to fly Hughes 300s or 269C models. But I quickly uh, started flying R-22s. But I didn't fly alphas or betas. I flew standards. Wow. Which most people don't even really know there ever was a standard. So I believe the alphas and betas, the gross is 1370. Mm -hmm. And I, if I recall, and again, now this is... 35 years ago, folks, so don't hold me to this, but I think a standard was 1,300 I think you're ounce. correct. So a friend of mine used to own a standard. Yeah. Um, which was maybe serial number seven, yeah, there, I think. Yeah. It, it was very, yeah. very low down yeah. um, in the yeah. list. Yeah, so, so yeah. yeah, they were they were great little helicopters, no question about it. So you, so you learned in a 22? Yep. So I learned in a 22 in New Zealand uh, in Christchurch. Over there, a, a commercial license is 150 hours of flight training. Same here in the States. Yep. So it took, together with the exams, it, oh, it took nine months or a year to work through that. It, it was part of a dedicated program run by a flight school. So I did that. And when I graduated, like everyone, I was thinking, how do I find a job in this industry? What do I do? And a lot of people were going over to Australia at that stage and doing cattle mustering. So there were lots of jobs advertised. You had to live off in the outback, far away, middle of nowhere. But it was always a thousand hours experience. And, and here's me with my 150 hours. So I, I saw this job advert and I thought, I'm going to ring this guy on the off chance and just say... Your CV worked fantastic the first time, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah this, this was pre-CV days. <laughs> um, so so I, I rang this guy and got talking to him and I said, look, you know, I'd love to come and work on your station, but how do I do it? I've got 150 hours and... He was in the very top end of Western Australia. And I happened to catch him when he was driving a truck from Broome down to Perth, which is about a 16 or 18 hour drive. And we got talking and he was like, oh, he said, that's interesting. He said, my wife's name's Vicky and she comes from New Zealand as well. She's from Hamilton. So we sort of had this connection and I just got him at the right time, I think. So we got talking and he said, look, he said, it's really hard industry to get into. He said, why don't you come over, spend a season on the station, and we'll see what we can do and help you out. So I got off the phone, and I went and bought a ticket to Australia, and I flew to this place called the Yeda Pastoral Company, which is north of Broome. The deal was that I was going to go there and just help out ground crewing, get used to working with cattle. I come off a farm, so I'm quite happy, yeah, quite comfortable me as well. working with animals. And anyway, so there I was, and I was working in the yards. I'd been there for two days, and... They had another Kiwi pilot working for them. And that young pilot was in the yard helping us. This tiny, tiny little calf, which was only about four days old, had walked up and stood behind him. And he didn't see it. And he stepped backwards, tripped over the calf, broke his tailbone, which is tragic. I, I'm saying this with a smile on my face because <laughs> it's it tragic my for career. Him. Not so tragic for you, I suppose. Exactly. And he got rushed off to hospital and he wasn't able to fly for about six months Darn when he it. recovered. So, so Jack, the station owner, said to me, well, Vic, here's, here's your opportunity. And look, he was great to learn with because he said to me, he was like, you stay at 500 feet and 50 knots. And he said, if I see you going below that, he said, you know, I'll have you basically. Right. So I went out and I, I followed him, followed his instructions, learned to muster. In the beginning, I couldn't see the cattle to save myself. <laughs> I'd, I'd be flying along and, where are they, Jack? And they're under like, you. <laughs> he said, well, well, you've just flown over them. So they're all heading back in the other direction. Um, and I mean, these were paddocks that were 10,000 hectares. Sure, right. huge. Right. So I spent a season there, did quite a lot of flying. Um, my second day working there, I actually had a set of clutch belts fly off the helicopter. So I did my first ever real auto rotation as well. Wow. At about 100, I think I had 170 hours. Good for and you. And clearly it went well. Well, I remember You're here, it, so it went well. It went very well. And I remember very distinctly 
doing it literally exactly the way I've been taught in flight school. Mm-hmm. I even did my radio call on the way down. I put the cyclic trim away. Put your wheels down? Didn't put my wheels down. <laughs> um, but no, it would, look, it was fabulous and it sure. was a really good learning exercise. Um, and right. you know, luckily, Kudos Jack was to there. you. That's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's it's, very impressive. Yeah. It, the one thing I always take away from that is I was aware that there were issues at that time with some of the clutch belts on a certain version of the 22s uh-huh. that were coming out. The helicopter I was flying only had 20 hours on it. And even though I did all the right things and was very fortunate that I was able to land that aircraft, and it had some damage, but, you know, they they patched it up and away we went again. Um, I I recognized the fact that I I was actually doing a left-hand descending turn and and I heard a noise and I saw this little puff because I looked out the window and I sort of see this puff of grey smoke and for a split second, I was thinking, what is that? And because it was in my mind about these clutch belts, one of my friends who was an engineer had said to me, just be so careful, Vic, when you're over there. It, I think for that reason, I was thinking something's weird. So I just pulled that clutch circuit breaker, which is probably what mm-hmm. potentially saved my mm-hmm. life. But it was the fact that the thing that I always regret is that I still thought about it for a second. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing I always drum right. into the people I've taught to fly is you need to react immediately. Right. So, know? and again, I haven't flown a ship. I haven't flown an R-22 in, in forever. Mm-hmm. But my recollection is, so if the if the motor is in transit, whether it be tensioning or uh, untensioning the belt, yes. there's an amber light that comes on. And if it's on for six seconds then you're supposed to take an action. Yeah, I think it's seven or eight seconds. Seven or eight action. seconds. Okay, yeah. so yeah. Well, yeah. It's been 40 years. Yeah. So so when you were in this left turn and you looked down, you saw the smoke, you looked down, or you just saw the puff? Well, I saw the puff and I thought that's weird. And then you could start to hear the, the because sure. it, the belts weren't there anymore sure. to drive the engine. So you could hear it coming down. So I did all the right things uh-huh. before the, the low RPM mm-hmm. light came on. Yeah, good for you. That's incredible. That's something to be proud of. It really is. Not that the event happened, but I believe that it validates your competency. I mean, I'm sure when you were on the ground, if you were so bold to admit, when you got on the ground, you felt good about your skill set. Oh, I did. And I definitely felt it, it was a validation of what I'd learned because mm-hmm. this this is one of the things when you learn to become a pilot that you always think there's... You know, there's the pilots out there that have had an accident and there's the pilots that are going to have mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So it's always in your head, you know, you learn this, you do hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of auto rotations and flight training, but you're always thinking, will I do the right mm-hmm. thing when it happens? Right. And, and I certainly never expected it to happen on my second day flying. <laughs> so so that did work. That was a great On a validation. ship with 20 hours. Yeah. And, you know, me coming off a farm and riding horses, my dad always taught me, you know, you come off your horse, you just get back on. So... So when Jack landed his helicopter next to mine and we went back to the yards, he, he was like, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'll fly yours back. Uh-huh. Um, so I jumped in and right. in hindsight might not have been the best decision. Oh, no, it was, factors, a, good, it was but, a good decision. But I was feeling. Why not? Yeah. There's no reason fine. not to. You didn't mean. Yeah, I think, you know, if you feel comfortable doing it mm. and you're not doing it just out of bravado or machismo, then there's no reason not to. Yeah. I mean, you could have had a bird strike, which would have been an event which would have caused a you to have a forced landing. That wouldn't stop you from flying another ship home. No. So, yeah, I, I think that's commendable for you and for the other gentleman to say, sure, if you feel comfortable doing that, do that. Um, yeah, that is a... You know, we don't wish that to happen for anyone, but, you know, when you handle something successfully, it does give you a sense of accomplishment and makes you feel good about the training. And it, like you said, it validates, it validates all that you've gone through to get where you are. And, and I would pose, again, I'm a farm kid too, so I grew up, we raised cattle and hogs, we raised pure red Angus cattle and commercial hogs. Cattle were the, that's what we really did, but we did, the hogs were really for to buy groceries. Um, so yeah, I grew up on a farm as well. And I think the tenacity, my guess is the tenacity that you learned living and working on a farm are the very uh, soft skills that have made you successful in your first career and your second career in aviation. I believe that. I think a lot of people would describe me as tenacious. Yes. It's and I very think, fair. Right. And when we look at our industry, I believe that your story 
is not so dissimilar in many ways from other people's. In other words, yeah, I, I had 150.4 hours and had a private, or I'm sorry, my commercial rating. And I'm like, okay, now what do I do? And uh, no one would hire me. No one's going to hire, you know, not in 1982. People are like looking at me like I had three heads. And uh, there were still a lot of Vietnam era pilots in the industry here in the United States. And so it was very difficult. And that's why I began to spray crop spray for a living because I couldn't get someone to hire me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and quite honestly, you know, after, I don't know, probably those first couple of years, I probably flew, I don't know, 900 to 1200 hours a year for those first couple of years. And, um, you know, by the time I was employable by others, I didn't want to work for anyone else. But I think taking the opportunity to put yourself out there and say, you know what, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm going to go give it a try. Because so often opportunities are given to those who are prepared to accept them. And if you would have said instead to the gentleman, you know what, if I don't have a sure job as a pilot, I'm not going to come, then you wouldn't have been there and this would have never happened. Oh, look, you're right. And so I spent two seasons up there flying and just it's beautiful country. It's absolutely incredible. Um, amazing people as well that live up there, like very, very hardy, very community mm-hmm. orientated. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah had some incredible experiences that are quite surreal when I right. think back on them. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, back to my days doing flight. that. I love, so again, because I did similar work to what you're talking about, and that's not in an environment as stark and unforgiving perhaps as the, uh, you know, Australian outback, but I love the interaction. Again, I'm a farm kid, so, you know, when you're spraying, you're working with farmers, and it was always a int- little intriguing to me that people... I won't say I have a negative opinion, but really don't understand farming. And I believe many people think that farmers, they, they associate it with low tech and, you know, kind of, you know, they think of green acres maybe, you know, where the guy's driving his one little tractor out there. And, but that's not the reality. No, and no. in fact, I believe the, the most competent people I've ever met in my life our farmers and ranchers. So, so we have a saying in New Zealand that, that w- a lot of people in New Zealand get described as using number eight wire knowledge. So number eight wire is like a high tensile yep. wire. So we can... We use number nine. Yeah. Well, but same go. thing. Yeah. Same yeah. thing. And it's, you know, we, we have to be able to bodge things together. We, we, we're down the bottom of the world. We struggle to get stuff imported there. Um, you know, if, if you live on a remote location or a farm, you make do with what you've mm-hmm. got. Right. Um, when something breaks, you fix it. Yep. You don't call someone to fix it. You fix it. You fix it yourself. And if you can't yeah. fix it, then you're going to be there a long time until you fix it. Mm. Yeah. I, I do believe, again, I go back to that tenacity. You know, when I first left the farm and started flying on my own, I can remember leaving the farm and, or, you know, not working every day on the farm. And it was unique in that I'd never gone to work in my life. In other words, on a farm, you are on a farm. You don't, you don't get up and say, I'm going to work. You get up, you take care of the animals, you have some breakfast, and then you go do work. I mean, you don't, there's no delineation between your personal life and your work life. It's just life. Yeah. So it was a little interesting and probably has made my life a little difficult now, even today, uh, in that, for me, it's difficult to just go have fun because for me, fun was always so entwined with work because I love being a farm kid and I love aviation. So today, I have difficulty disconnecting from that because I, I still love aviation. Mm, yeah, so do I. And I think that's a lot of people in aviation for them. I think it's a vocation. It's not a it's not a job. Um, I know even for me, I struggled when I moved back to New Zealand and went to work for the Civil Aviation Authority because it's it's a public service. And I couldn't adapt to working five days a week because I was used to working seven days a week. You know, we, we had a helicopter company, my partner and I. So, you know, we kept our, hang- our hangers were at the house. So like sure. you just described, you, you woke up in the morning, you did whatever you needed to do. You went out, you got the machines ready, you went and did some spraying, you came back, you messed around in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so moving into an office-based job, mm-hmm. it, was, it took quite a bit to get used to it. Yes. And the other thing I couldn't adapt to was working 40 hours a week. Right. Because it's, I was just used to It felt like part-time. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and having all this time off and public holidays, and so it took it took probably yeah. two years to adapt to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember being in school, and uh, yeah, I'd come home and I'd run a tractor. I mean, I I would. I mean, this sounds. My kids are like, Dad, you got to stop telling stories like that. But I would run a tractor sixty to seventy hours a week while going to school. And taking care of the, I mean, so running a tractor was secondary to taking care of the cattle and the hogs. That was, you know, that was field work. So, yeah, when I, when, when I, you know, stepped away from that and even then ultimately started flying medical helicopters, it was a little unique to me to, you know, just to work, go to work. I'd work 12-hour days. I'd work seven 12-hour days and then I was off. Hmm. And those seven days off, I'm like, well, you know, what do you do? What do I do? So your experience doing cattle mustering and spraying and you know sure. that utility work, how did that help you transition into being a regulator in EST? Right. So I actually think the thing that helped the most with becoming the regulator was in between my two seasons of mustering, I, I did an instructor rating. So I went back to New Zealand, uh, went to a company called Garden City Helicopters and in New Zealand, we've got three categories of instructors, C, B, and A. So C is your initial one. So I, I went and did my CCAT instructor rating with them. And they're one of the big rescue organizations in New Zealand. And all of their pilots, are, they're all ACAT instructors and 10,000 ab pilots. And they're flying the rescue machines. And, you know, they're the people that we all look up to. Mm-hmm. And you, that's the job that you want, really. It's your dream job. So I did my instructor rating with them and... When I finished that rating and I was going back to Australia mustering, John Curry, who owned that organisation, he said to me, he was like, oh, he said, look, if we have a job come up, we'll ring you. And I had like 500 hours at the stage and I was like, they're never going to ring me. Um, but I said, anyway, I'll see you when I come back. So way I went back to Australia for my second season and I'd been there for probably three months. And I'm in the middle of nowhere. I got this phone call, came through <laughs> to the farmhouse and it was one of my old instructors there and he said, hey, we need, we need an instructor here. So do you want to come back and here's your opportunity? You can step in and become an instructor. And I couldn't believe it. So I, I went back and I started working as an instructor there. They, they had a class of about seven or eight students. And I was mentored by all these amazing people, just absolutely phenomenal pilots. Um, the likes of Neil Scott, who's one of the, he's probably the, the most qualified pilot that we have in New Zealand, mm-hmm. both fixed wing and helicopter, high time. He, he keeps telling me he'll retire one day, but I don't think he ever will. Um, <laughs> he's about, I, I won't say he's it because he'll shoot me. He's young. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was really blessed to be mentored by all these amazing pilots. And I went, I stayed with that organization for about four years and went through, became a BCAT instructor. So I've done a couple of thousand hours instructing now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was that instructional technique and capacity that I learned that really helped me to become a regulator because you, I believe being a good instructor is, it's not just being able to teach the skill to someone, but it's being able to recognize what that student is struggling with, mm-hmm. what part of something they don't understand, and then being able to give that information to them in a way that they can understand Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So there's no point in just repeating the same thing three times. If someone doesn't get it, you need to change your approach so they do understand it. Right. So... For me, I think that's the part that's helped the most becoming the re- working for mm-hmm. the regulator is so the first battle was getting people to understand that the regulator's not the devil. Mm-hmm. You know, we're actually there to <laughs> right. help you. Absolutely. You know, Very we true. want safety. It's it's a partnership in a lot of ways. So so that's sort of the approach that I've always taken to it, that it's about communicating, collaboration, engagement, having dialogue with people, like listening to our participants and understanding the parts that they're struggling with and then enabling them to understand why we have these regulations and how they fit in that system. Mm -hmm. Yes. So So, communication is the key for all of it. And when you look at, or I believe, when you look at uh, flight instruction, and I loved flight instruction. I, I haven't done any ab initio training in many years, but like you, I found, I love the challenge of learning each student's um, individual needs and learning the ways that they learn. And I found the challenge to communicate them in a, with them in a way that was useful. 
And as an instructor, if you've been flying with someone maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and they're struggling with something that you know they can do, it's because now they are exhausted or they're tired. And, you know, being an instructor, I would say we, we often, we often say we teach people how to fly helicopters, but I don't think that that is true. We stop people from getting hurt while they learn to fly a helicopter. In other words, we're there to give them guidance while they learn to do it. Because the mind, it takes, it's why, it's why you can't do two, when you're doing an ab initio training, two lessons in the same day is useless. You need to do maybe an hour, 45 minutes to an hour and a half, somewhere in there. And then that's it for the day. You know, maybe you take the next day off, then you fly on the third day and you do it again. But, you know, if you try to compress too much in a short period of time, it just doesn't work for no, whatever reason. And, and you'll end up with a student who, you know, some of them may be very good hands-on. You say, you know, that's one of those pilots, I've got great hands. But if they develop the situational awareness that they need or even the emotional intelligence that they need when they're flying right. Decision to, to recognize making skills. what's happening with their passengers or the job that they're going into. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so much. And I, again, this is just my belief, but I believe if we took all the pilots in the world virtually that fly helicopters and we could measure their dexterity manipulating the flight controls, their competency manipulating the flight controls, I think you'll find most of them, I'm on a scale of one to 10, you're going to find most of them are eights and nines. I mean, I think most people are pretty, pretty damn good at manipulating the flight controls. But that's a small part of being a great helicopter pilot. The other part is what you just mentioned, the, the mental aspect of it, decision-making, situational awareness, knowing your body, knowing when you're reaching a limit. Uh, you know, if you've been out cattle mustering for eight hours, that's probably not the time to decide you're going to go do a search and rescue thing. Or you're, I mean, we have to know ourselves. And too often, we exceed our own limitations. We do. We do. Um, and look, I think for me, I know I've... Um, Oh, how would I describe this? I know I've been so fortunate with the the flying roles that I've held in my career. So, you know, that, that first job I had mustering, the guy I worked for, he was just fantastic because, like you said, it's, some days we were doing 12 or 13 hours. And I remember one time, I think it was my fourth day, and we'd had three 12-hour days, and I was just exhausted. And I remember I said to him, I said, look, I'm going to land and have a sleep. And he was like, just do it. Don't worry about the cattle. So so it was always about safety. It was always about the pilot. And it was the same with, when I was instructing at Garden City. They were, there was never any pressure. There was never any commercial pressure. You know, if, if I'd been doing flight instructing and there was a job came in, a lifting job, and because flight training's tiring. Oh my it's, gosh, very you know, fatiguing. As the person sitting there trying very to fatiguing. get this information across, it is fatiguing. So, and it was the same thing. They always said, look, if you, if you don't feel that you're up to it, you know, if you feel that you're not in the right headspace, don't do it. We'll mm -hmm. get someone else to do it. We'll put it off to the next day. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, both of those people, both of those companies for me were great examples. Of professionalism. Of, of professionalism and people recognizing how important safety is and, and the human factors component. And it's very that. basic. It doesn't have to be, you know, we, I think too often we look at, People look at safety and say, oh, my gosh, you know, I need an SMS and I have to, you know, a lot of this, even SMSs can be very basic. It should not be some elaborate book on a shelf that people don't follow. It should be reasonable, yep. achievable, and, you know, something that we can all say, yeah, you know, that's smart. In my career, I have found that the pressure to go, the pressure to do more, the pressure to uh, achieve something additional that day or that week or that month mm. has largely resided within me, not an external pressure. It's me that says, you know what? I don't want to disappoint Vicky. I, I, I'll go do that extra hour. When in fact, it would be much better if I said, you know what, Vicky? I'm exhausted. I can't do it. We all need to learn that ability to recognize when we're at our limit and say no. Definitely. So sort of following on from that theme, something interesting that we're seeing at the moment in New Zealand. So we have 
so with the pandemic, our borders were closed. We were locked down for a couple of years, literally. Famously our, locked down, actually. Famously locked down. Um, so for me, it's quite exciting to be free from my country again, <laughs> being able to come to Dallas. Um, but during that time, so we had no international tourists coming in. And, and several of our large helicopter companies based in Queenstown and Taupo in the North Islands, you know, they're solely based on tourism. And a lot of our agricultural operators as well, things got a lot slower for them. But one of the things that's come out of this is that they've actually, because they had that time to stop and consolidate what they were doing and to think about the direction of their lives and their organisations, a lot of people were forced to spend more time with their families because they didn't have to go out, didn't have to go and do that work. What we're seeing now is that a lot of companies are saying, hey, we don't want to ramp back up to what we were. You know, so so companies that previously had 20, 25 helicopters listed on their uh, operation specifications, currently they'll have 12 and they're saying, we, we don't want to go back to the way it was. And bigger is not always better. No. And, you know, for me, that's really refreshing. And a lot of them are using their safety management systems, which you touched on previously. It's another passion of mine. Um, you know, they're running this through their safety management systems and they're saying, do you know what, if we look at this from a financial aspect as well, there is no more gain or there's very limited financial gain for ramping up to those bigger organize to being a bigger organization and we have a better quality of life and we have a better product mm-hmm. right. if we stay the size And I do are. think we talking about SMSs and uh, flight risk assessment tools and there are so many opportunities that we can overlook if we don't have an SMS to really understand the risk. And, and a good example for me is doing night vision goggle auto rotations. So if you're going to do, we do auto rotations to the surface. Uh, that's what we do at Airbus. Not saying that's right or wrong. That's what we do. But to do those at night under goggles is a higher risk. It just is. So the SMS or our flight risk assessment tool reflects that. We have to be more cautious, and uh, sometimes, even though all things may be okay from an environmental standpoint, maybe it's a beautiful night, you know, it's, you know, there's the appropriate amount of lumen, it's not, you know, your goggles aren't going to scintillate, you, it's a good night to fly, but, you know, the instructor perhaps didn't get a good night's sleep, or, you know, wasn't feeling 100%. Instead of forcing it, And again, these flight risk assessment tools help us make those decisions. You have to say, you know what? No, you know, I'm in the yellow. And I look at that just like I do a torque meter or a T4 gauge. You know, green's good, yellow, you're in the takeoff limiter. You're at risk and red is completely unacceptable. And SMS is important. It's something that's coming. Not every operator has to have it yet, but I believe everyone should have it. Yeah, so John Franklin was speaking about this earlier and at the vast... um at his opening speech in the in the conference, and he was talking about the collaboration side of safety management systems. So the New Zealand CAA, rightly or wrongly, made the decision that all of our certificated operators would go through SMS implementation. So even our little agricultural operators that have one aircraft have a safety management system. And we did a lot of work with our operators, a lot of engagement and education leading up to them actually going through the SMS implementation side. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing some of our smallest operators, because it's scaled and it's suitable to their organisation, what we're seeing is that they're collaborating more. So when you've got this sort of, we call them mum and pop operators, so one man, the chief executives, the chief pilot, his loader driver might be the safety manager or his wife or an office girl, and they're working together. And we're seeing companies that used to be competitors now might be sharing a safety manager or they're at least sharing safety information, whereas previously they were totally isolated sure. and they'd never talk to anyone about what they were doing because they didn't want to lose their competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But now and they're I think talking that is good. And it goes back to communication. Mm. It's, it's all about effective communication. There is plenty of work uh, and it does no one, an accident affects us all. Oh, yeah. If your competitor has an accident, that is not a benefit to you. That is a detriment. It's a detriment to our entire industry. So it's in our best interest to help everyone succeed. And, you know, I know that's difficult sometimes. People say, yeah, but, you know, they're my direct competitor. Yeah, they may be on that particular contractor in that particular environment. But you know what? They may be your best ally one day as mm-hmm. well. 
And I do think that communication, again, are opportunities through the internet, through, you know, hell, cell phones. I mean, the ability to really communicate with people has helped our industry if we use the tool and we're unafraid. So I'm sure that the FAA is very interested in what's happened in New Zealand because it's not a requirement for everyone yet here in this country. But I do think more people are coming to the realization that it can impact in a positive way their operation because, you know, accidents and incidents cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we really start to assess risk, if you turn down a flight because it is too risky, it, the threat is too high, and you lose $10,000 of profit, let's say it's a very high profitability flight, that is nothing, nothing when you look at the potential for an accident or an incident mm. that, that evening. So again, to your point, I think the pandemic in many ways, and, and I'm not, you know, certainly I'm not advocating for a pandemic, but the pandemic has... I do believe for many people, we've stepped back. In fact, what we're doing here today is a direct result of the pandemic. You know, prior to 2020, prior to March of 2020, I did only in-person presentations. I went around the world and spoke in person. But of course, I believe it was about March 12th of 2020, that came to a screeching halt. So I had to look for other ways to communicate. And so I chose videos. I started doing videos. And literally, I started with my cell phone in my office. And, you know, people that have watched my first videos probably say, yeah, Bruce, that's reflective in the quality <laughs> of your videos. But it was something. And it was, and, and we had to learn to communicate differently. And then with uh, Logan, who's here with us today, uh, Logan Evans, he, he's the one that had the idea for the podcast. He's like, Bruce, we, we have to start podcasting. So my point is, while the pandemic was a horrific event, we all need to look at how it has made a positive impact as well. Absolutely. Look, it was a reset for a lot of people. And it's like everything, even an accident, touch wood, that we never have them. There's always something to learn. There's always something that can be taken out of it that's going to help someone else. Right. Yeah, if we don't learn from accidents, and that's the very, you know, that's part of the reason, again, we're doing this, is we want to delve into some particulars of accidents, and we're not going to do that today with you. We've just met, so. Uh, but there'll be other opportunities for you and I to speak, I'm sure. But we do want to examine. It does, it does us no good if we have an accident, we do an investigation, we have all this material, all this information, but then we don't disseminate it. Because quite honestly, and uh, Randy Roll said it this morning, I believe, as well, during his opening comments here at VAST, that, you know, we don't have new ways to crash helicopters. We're crashing them in, in similar ways repeatedly. And that's largely true. And most of it is, in fact, human error. Mm. We're all humans. We're, we're, we're certainly capable of error at any time. But things like flight risk assessment tools, which include a good self-evaluation. You know, I believe if you'd go back to your career when you're flying the line every day, so to speak, at the end of a 12-hour day, you're not as capable of executing any maneuver as you are one hour into the day. And we need to realize that. And that doesn't mean you can't fly a long day, but it does change the risk. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And if we don't understand that and we don't put, you know, something in to mitigate that risk, uh, you know, the question that is, is the reward greater than the risk? It's really why I don't, safety is not a word that I'm very fond of. I, I use an example in presentations sometimes. I will ask people, I will say, listen, I want everyone in this room who would like to hover a helicopter at 100 feet AGL. It's a, a Robinson. I'm going to use an R-22. Perfectly airworthy R-22. A perfectly airworthy R-22. If you ask 100 pilots who would like to go hover it at 100 feet AGL for two hours and not move, just hover it at 100 feet AGL, who would do that for nothing? And most people in the room would be like, yeah, I'm not doing that for nothing. I mean, you're, you're right in the HV curve. You're in a position where if something goes wrong, you're in trouble. Most people wouldn't do that. And a lot of people would say, Bruce, that wouldn't be safe. And then I'd change it. I'd say, okay, who in this room would like to go hover an R-22, perfectly airworthy ship, at 100 feet AGL for two hours, and I will give you $1 billion US dollars cash for doing that? Mm. How many people would do it? They all put their hands up. Everyone. Is it more safe now? No, the risk hasn't changed at all. It's the reward. So that's why I'm not super fond of the word safety because in the first example, people say, oh, it isn't safe, Bruce. That wouldn't be prudent. 
Mm. Okay, great. Let's change the reward. Then they're like, whoa. So everything is a balance between risk and reward. That's it. And it's a difficult balance for our operators to make, especially when they are under financial pressure from things like the pandemic where their their income's been massively reduced. Absolutely. I understand that. If they have a good system in place and they have the right people in place in that organisation as well, you know, so if they've got a strong CEO, a, a good safety manager who's supported by the CEO for making those decisions. Right. Uh, I think that's definitely the benefit. I think these small organizations too, they're, they're typically family run mm. and you're treated like family. And there are people that criticize that. I think that is fantastic. I, I've in my life always strived to work in an environment where I felt like I was part of a family. Yeah. And... I think when you feel like you're part of a family, then you're okay with telling someone I can't, or even perhaps more important, you shouldn't. Mm. Hey, Vicky, you've been flying 10 hours. You know what? This is call it a day. Yeah. And I had an event that's happened long ago, and Frank Kanalka, who's probably listening, he will remember this. During Hurricane Katrina, we were flying people off of I-10 in the causeway, and we were going over to Baton Rouge to the Pete Maravich Center. It was about 2 a.m. We're flying across Lake Pontchartrain. It's dark. There's no lights anywhere because there's no electricity. It's post-Katrina. And I'm flying a VFR helicopter. Frank's in an IFR twin. And we're going across Lake Pontchartrain. I said, hey, Frank, uh, we're done. When we land, we're done. He's like, no, no, we can do another flight. I said, we're done. We're done. We're done. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's always tempting to push and do more and push and do more and push and do more, especially when you believe you're making a difference in people's lives. But the reality is, if we have an accident, then it all stops Mm. and no one gets helped. And in fact, we can be part of the problem then. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the big things as well with safety management systems in New Zealand. We really promote the culture of organizations. And we spend a lot of time talking to people about having, having the right people at the top, having the right culture within that organization, how they're training their people, the expectations that they put on their pilots, their crew, right down to the clients that they're working with. So if you've got a, like a farmer, for example, you know, when I was working, flying ag work, the, you know, the, the farmers would ring at five o'clock in the morning and you'd say to them, look, what's, what's the weather like out there? Is it any good? Is it windy? No, there's no wind. It's absolutely perfect. Brilliant spraying conditions. You, you'd get out there and it'd be blowing 25 knots. <laughs> Honestly, nine times out of 10, the same thing would happen. But that pressure from those clients to go and do that job is not good. So that's that's something else that we're bringing into safety management systems back home is that, you know, our operators, they feel more enabled now to actually say no to a client right. because they don't have that fear either that if they say no to a job... Someone else will say yes. ...the next company will go and say yes. And, right. and there will always be and the that's ones that happened. do. Yes, that's happened in our business, unfortunately. Yeah, but that's part of the industry working together and where we have good industry groups. So we've got the New Zealand Helicopter Association. They spend a lot of time as well working with our operators and talking about exactly this, talking about culture the expectations that you put on your people, um, the pressure that you allow your clients to put on them, even the way they interact with with others. It's, right. Well, I think that's massive. why I'm certain, and again, we've just met, but I'm certain we'll have uh, many more interactions. So I'm certain that it is your, your career path which started, you know, kind of uh, inauspiciously, right? I mean, mm-hmm. flying an R-22 in the bush, to now being a regulator has provided you with a lot of lessons learned and allows you to interact with people and communicate with them because you do know, you understand the pressure, you understand what it's like to be out there and and feel like you've got to go. And I'm certain that's part of the reason your CV, you know, was batting a thousand. You, You provided one and you were hired is that you have that ability to communicate because of your experience. Yeah, definitely. Look, I use my experience and I'm, you know, I fly single engine, single engine VFR. Um, like I said, I'm a flight instructor and an ag pilot, but I I've, I don't do rescue work. I don't have NVG ratings. I, I fly at night. I'm mm-hmm. a night instructor, night VFR instructor. But whatever you do in this industry, you've got to be upfront. You've got to be open. You've got to be honest. Um, I've got a team of highly, highly skilled specialized people working for me. You know, like 
These guys, they fly super pumas. They worked as hoist pilots overseas. Um, they're multi-engine IFR mm-hmm. instructors. They're just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them is immensely more qualified right. than I am. And that's why it says team leader in your title, because it doesn't mean that you have to be the most that's skilled it. in anything. Yeah, It's your job to assemble a team mm. of professionals that can accommodate and understand the entirety of your needs as a business. That's it. And that's why in the five years I've been at CAA, there's a big shift in the way our industry engages with us now. There's a huge change in the way we engage with our industry, which I think has enabled them to actually come to us, talk to us. We have people that ring us now and ask questions. I get phone calls seven days a week from our participants about the most random things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll ring to ask me questions about things that aren't even related to Mm -hmm. aviation. They Mm -hmm. just want my opinion or they want the opinion of someone in the team. Right. Which I I think that's a great way to work as a regulator. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the word leader, leader is so important in your title and in your demeanor and how you conduct yourself personally and professionally. Thank you. And I think that, you know, we need more leaders. We need more people who assemble a team of experts, not to be the expert themselves. And I think so often in our world, people who are in charge, however you want to define that, whether you're a manager, which is another term I'm not fond of, but leader (laughs) is a term Leader is something that everyone should ascribe to be. Mm. And that is a person who, uh, who communicates well and knows what they know and knows what they don't know and reaches out to find the people that know what they don't know. Mm. So kudos to you. I think oh, thank you. we as an industry, we as a world have to look past the old way of doing things, which was the person in charge had to know everything. Oh, and a lot of pressure on that person as well. It's Right. Yeah. And when we look at SMS, it's a system that all it's not one person making all the the decisions. It's not it's a it's a it's a system. And really a system is put in place by a leader to allow everyone to succeed. Hmm. That's what it ultimately is. And you know, for the for the organization to succeed, if the organization succeeds, everyone succeeds. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to learn more about your SMS. Uh, oh, well. In New Zealand. But for today. Come to New Zealand sometime. <laughs> well, and I've we'll got to be invited, Vicki. So <laughs> I don't go anywhere I'm not invited. I've never invited myself to go anywhere. I don't. Yeah. So I've not been to New Zealand or Australia, two places I'd love to go. Uh, I've been as close as, I guess, Jakarta, Indonesia is probably the closest I've flown Borneo, mm. Sumatra, but probably Jakarta anyway. But I, yeah. I, I'm sure we can work something out to extend <laughs> you an invitation, Bruce. And well, maybe Logan as well. <laughs> Logan's fantastic. Yeah. So it looks like we've reached our clearance limit. I do want to thank you, Vicki. You have been a fantastic guest. Not only your competency as a leader, but your charm shines through. I mean that sincerely. Until next time, resume on navigation. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for the opportunity. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.